Those who come regularly will know that we're in Sunday mornings working through the book of 1 Corinthians and uh, we come to chapter 11 and the Lord's Supper and um, we actually gave the, words, the Lord's words here, do this in remembrance of me last week as we were looking at the preceding section as an example of an absolute in scripture where God gives us something that we just obey as it is given and we said that we celebrate the Lord's Supper here in the church twice uh, a month. Um, but it's an incredibly important thing, isn't it? And the more I, over the years, um, studied it and the more I've read about it and the more particularly that I've read of uh, preachers' messages on it in former centuries, I'm more and more convinced that we appreciate it far less by and large than Christians of previous centuries have on many occasions. We don't seem to have the same hunger for it, we don't seem to have the same commitment to it, um, we don't seem to take the same preparation for it as Christians of bygone days so often have. Uh, it seems to me that for many Christians today, if they were totally honest about it, it is nothing more than another aspect of church life that if they're there for it, that's fine. If they're not, well, that's the way it is sort of thing. Rather than it being the absolute vital, central aspect of our worship of God, when we come together to remember the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for me, a sinner in the way that God has told us to do it so I actually don't want us to just look at these verses this week what I'd like to do is this week look at the um, the the particular problem here at the church at Corinth and then next week and I'm not even sure that we'll finish it next week just to look at the Lord's Supper and what it's all about and uh, next week, God willing, there will be perhaps some more teenagers with us as a covey service and that will do them good as well. And uh, we'll, we'll just start to look a bit more about what the Lord's Supper is all about. So for this week, the problem here at the church at Corinth, I want us to see first of all divisions instead of unity, verses 17 through to 19. We said a few weeks ago um, in another context that an important aspect of celebrating the Lord's Supper is fellowship. It's not the important thing, of course the important thing is the death of Jesus Christ that we've come to remember, but an important aspect of it is the fact that we do it as a body of God's people. We come together to remember him. Jesus broke bread and gave it to them, to to a plurality of people. Paul, giving his instruction here to the church at Corinth, says when you come together, it's it's an act of unity brothers and sisters in Christ coming together to remember the death of their Saviour. Indeed, whenever we come together as a church, it should be an act of unity. Otherwise, why do we come together? Um, What's the point of coming here? We're not coming here to worship God in a church. The building is of no importance at all. We come together to worship God with the church. That's the point, isn't it? Otherwise, we might just stay at home and do it on our own. A central part of it is the fact that we are together, we're united, we're sharing in fellowship as we worship God. We are one in that act of worship. And there should be a wonderful unity there, shouldn't there? It should be a unity that is something greater than any unity you see outside in the world. I wonder how much you appreciate the unity of sharing together in worship with brothers and sisters in Christ. In the world, there are all sorts of divisions, aren't there? Some are divided over sex, some are divided over race, some are divided over interests, some are divided over hobbies or age. 
you join this society to meet with people of a common interest, you, take, you go to that club to share with people of that interest, you join that political party because you've got that interest in common with them. You come to church and all of those differences are irrelevant or should be. We are, if you're saved, you're one in Christ with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that true? Even the Jew and the Gentile who were diametrically opposed to each other were united in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2, 14 to 18. Speaking of Christ, Paul writes, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Isn't that amazing? That's one of the most amazing truths of the church, I would suggest to you. That we have a unity, a oneness in Christ. And it's an amazing thing, isn't it, to find communities like you would have in Northern Ireland and in other parts of the world where society is completely divided and yet there are men and women worshipping together in unity in the Lord Jesus Christ despite their differences and despite what's going on around them. But not in Corinth. Instead of there being unity here in this church, there's division. Instead of there being a oneness, there's fragmentation. Look at verse 19. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. There's a sense in which it is right that there are divisions. Paul's already spoken about that earlier on. In fact, he commands them to separate themselves and distance themselves from those who are proclaiming to be Christians but living uh, a life of continual sin and rebellion against God. There is that sense in which division is right. You don't mix and you don't accommodate what is clearly blatantly wrong but where your brothers and sisters in Christ and you're seeking to honour the Lord and, and follow the Lord, then there must be a unity, there must be a oneness. And it's not there in this church. Now can I suggest to you, to make sense of these verses, we need to read a little bit into the text here and, and we just need to try and understand what lies behind it. And I suggest to you what lies behind it is something like this. That the church, and maybe it was even at Paul's instigation when he was there previous, I don't know. But the church somewhere along the line has thought it would be a good idea that when they come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they should have some sort of communal meal first. Uh, an agape meal, a love meal. That, that they should somehow come together and share what they have and express their oneness and the unity in that way. What a lovely idea, isn't it? They've got there in their congregation Jews and Gentiles, rich, poor, slave and free. Obviously some have a lot and others have very little and, and the idea is what a wonderful expression of our unity and love for each other that if you've got a lot you can bring a lot if you're rich you can bring good stuff if you're poor you just bring what you can contribute and we just pull it all together and we'll share it out and we'll enjoy together before we celebrate the Lord's death our, our, our unity as God's people what a, what a wonderful idea you think what that, an encouragement that would have been to the poor and the slaves in that fellowship that their masters and those who are rich and high up in society are sharing with them and eating, sitting next to them, talking with them over a meal. You think what a witness that would have been to Corinth 
where status is so important and where slaves are so menial and the free are so, so high, to, to, to know that this church comes together and they have real practical unity there inside that church. What a wonderful concept. What a disastrous implementation of it. It just goes terribly wrong. Now why does it go so wrong? Look at verses 21-22. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anyone else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Do you see the problem? I suggest to you it runs something like this. You can imagine the first few weeks doing it and you bring along a great big pile of wonderful food and your best drink out of your wine cellar or whatever it is you brought along and you put it in there and you're sort of watching there to see where it goes and you get your plate and what have you got? You've got some shriveled up vegetables that someone's provided and a glass of water to drink. And sitting next to you is someone who's got really nice stuff and they didn't bring it and you brought it and you're sort of thinking, well, this isn't too good. And then you find yourself sitting next to you, washed and you've put on your best clothes before you come out. And you find yourself sitting next to a slave who's a bit smelly and in rags and you try to have a nice intelligent conversation with him over the mill and he's not at all intelligent and he can't converse with you on the level you're used to conversing on and over there you can see your friends and you think I'd much rather be sitting over there with them. So what happens after two or three attempts at this? You figure, well, if I get there early I can choose which food I have and I can choose where I sit and I can choose who I sit next to. Now who can get there early? Can the slaves get there early? Of course they can't, they've got to work. Can the poor get there early? No, they can't. They've got to work. I tell you who can get there early, the rich, the free, the masters, they can get there early because they've got no responsibilities outside. So they come early, they bring with them all their nice food, their nice drink, they pour that together and they share that out amongst themselves and they occupy a nice area of seating and they enjoy themselves with no thought for the rest. And when the poor are able to turn up and when the slaves are able to turn up, what's left? What they bring? And who can they sit next to? Other slaves and poor. And instead of it being a wonderful act of unity, it's a very clear demonstration of division. And so Paul says there in in verse uh, 22, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. In fact, he says back there in verse 17, in the following directions I have no praise for you, your meetings do more harm than good. It would be better if you didn't hold it at all than you held it like that, says Paul. And it leaps out at us as being so, doesn't it? I mean, wouldn't that be horrific to have been a slave and go there to something like that? To just have it rubbed in your face, the fact that you're poor and you're a slave. And there are others in the same church who've got so much. What an insult. Verse 22, they humiliate those who have nothing. What what a condemnation of Christians in a church. What if God should say that of us? You actually humiliate those who are worse off than yourselves. That's what God says against his church here in Corinth. And so by the time they come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, you can just imagine the state that they're in. Those who've arrived early and, and eaten their fill of all the best are bloated, that they're, well, they're drunk, according to verse 21. I mean, 
maybe there's a bit of hyperbole there, maybe he's expressing it in the strongest language he can, but they're, they're certainly feeling the effects of the drink they've had. So they're sort of bloated and, and hiccuping over their drink, and the poor are sort of, you know, and getting really worked up because they've been so badly treated, and then you're supposed to be coming together to remember the death of Jesus Christ for you and your brothers and sisters. Is there any wonder that their communion's a mess? Is there any wonder that their celebration of the Lord's Supper is coming under God's judgment? Self instead of others. Judgment instead of blessing. Move down to verse 27 onwards. All that we've said so far really could be separated from the celebration of the Lord's Supper, couldn't it? It would be horrific for a church to do that on any occasion. It would be horrific for the church to just say, let's have a barbecue one afternoon and treat the rich separate to the poor, treat the slaves different to the free. That, that would be a horrific thing. And really all that we've said so far you can take out of the context of the Lord's Supper and, and what is written here would apply. But what makes it infinitely worse is the fact that they're linking it together with their remembrance of Christ's death. That they're actually bringing the, the celebration of the Lord's death into this abusive practice. And so they come under the judgment of the Lord for it. And I want us to just move over the verses of detail in the Lord's Supper because we're going to look at that next time. But I want us to look on verse 27 onwards that this way the Lord responds to what they've been doing. Not least because in preparation for next time I think this gives us a wonderful picture of how seriously we need to take the Lord's Supper as well as how seriously we take how we treat those who are less fortunate than ourselves in the church. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. It's a vital issue there, isn't there? Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. How do we understand that? Now there have been Christians and maybe I'm sure there are today in places who just will not take the Lord's Supper they will not celebrate it for fear that they do it in an unworthy manner and they say if I do it in an unworthy manner then I'll be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord and I'll come under God's judgement. It does not say that in that verse. It is an adverb not an adjective. It it is if your behaviour is unworthy not if you are unworthy. There is all the difference in the world. No Christian is worthy to celebrate the Lord's death, are we? No Christian is worthy to come and say, I've got the right to stand here and celebrate the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for me. I come in my own righteousness. Of course not. We are totally unworthy. We come because the Lord Jesus Christ bids us come. We come because of his righteousness. We come standing on blood-bought ground. We plead his mercy before his throne. It is of his grace that we come and his grace alone. It's not about whether or not we are worthy. It's about whether or not we act worthily. That is a very different thing. 
Now having said that, can I say there's another thing I think Christians go wrong here very often. That's what they say, well what this is saying here is that non-Christians shouldn't take of it. Well I agree, non-Christians shouldn't participate in the Lord's Supper. It's meaningless to them. They can't discern rightly the body and blood of Christ because they don't understand what Christ has done for them. Christ hasn't done it for them unless they come in repentance and faith. So it, it is, you're right in saying it's not appropriate for non-Christians to come and partake of it, but my friends, that isn't what it's actually saying here. Because the instruction is to examine yourselves, not to not take it. The instruction is to examine yourself before you take it. He's talking to Christians here. What he's saying is that it's perfectly possible for a Christian to come and partake of the celebration of the Lord's Supper in a wrong way. That's what he's saying. The way they were doing it wrongly was their treatment of one another. Their selfishness, their pride, their refusal to treat others on a par with themselves or higher than themselves as they should be. That was their wrong mindset and and they were taking that into the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Now for us it might be something totally different but the point is it is possible, it is very possible for us to come and partake of the Lord's Supper as Christians but in an unworthy way. Now how do we prevent that happening? Two tests that we are to do first one is in verse 28 we ought to examine ourselves before we eat and drink of the bread eat the bread and drink of the cup a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup we should go through a period of self-examination and I suggest you this is one of the things that we don't take as seriously today as Christians in past generations have and there was a time when people would spend the Saturday night if the Sunday morning they were going to celebrate communion in preparing themselves to partake of it They would spend it in studying the scriptures, they would spend it in reflecting on what Christ had done for them, they'd spend it in examining their own life and their own witness and their own pursuit of holiness in order that when they came to church the next morning to partake of it, they would be in a right state to do so. I wonder how many of us have done that. Certainly how many of us do that as a regular thing. The instruction here is that we spend time examining ourselves. It doesn't mean looking at ourselves for spots or looking in the mirror to see whether our makeup's on right. I, I suggest you we probably spend more time worrying about what we look like to come to it than what we are like to come to it, very often. That's terrible. What does it matter what we look like? But we're concerned about that. Is my hair right? Is my makeup on right? Have I got the right clothes on? Have I remembered to dress appropriate, I'm going to church, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper. Okay, that's, that's good that you, you want to have a right appearance. But man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart, doesn't he? What we're supposed to be doing is examine our hearts. How, how have I been living since I last celebrated the Lord's Supper? What's my relationship like with my brothers and sisters who I'm going to be sharing it with? Is there sin there that I haven't confessed? Is there a habit there that, that I'm not dealing with? What's my love of Christ? Am, 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 I actually, am I actually in love with Christ? Am I actually delighting in him? Or am I just going there to do a tradition? Because that's what we do twice a month. Why am I celebrating this? What am I expecting to get out of it? 
How am I going to express my praise to God when I'm there celebrating it? That's what we're supposed to do beforehand. Now I suggest you we always pause for a moment in the service to, to let ourselves examine our own hearts, but there isn't time there to do it properly. There is time there to just repeat to God any prayers of repentance that we've made. You know, that if we've recognised there is sin there and we've asked God to forgive it, there's, there's the opportunity there just to just to, to, to go over those things again with the Lord and just to seek his, just re- repeat our sorrow before him. Let me put it like that. If, if we confess our sin, he's forgiven us. But there is the opportunity to just repeat to him again our sorrow for having failed him again in that way. But there's not time for a lot else, is there? We need to make time, whether it's the Saturday night, whether it's the Sunday morning, whenever, to just prepare ourselves so that we celebrate it in a right way. There's a second test here, a second practical test. Verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgement on himself. There there is a self-examination and there's a right mental attitude. And we need both of those things. We need to examine ourselves before we take part in it and then we need to have a right mental thoughts while we participate in it. What we are handling are sacred things. Now please let me explain what I mean by that before anyone walks out in disgust. I do not believe for one second they change their form in any way. I do not believe that they cannot be discarded afterwards if they're not consumed. I do not believe that they change into the body and blood of Christ I believe they are what they are and they remain what they are they are made sacred by what they represent as we eat of that bread by faith we are eating of Christ as we drink of that cup by faith we are drinking of the shed blood of Jesus Christ what is more sacred than that if we don't discern that Paul says if we treat it like it is, just bread and grape juice, we're guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Christ. Theologians differ as to what they believe that means, that expression there, but I would suggest to you, I think it possibly, possibly at least does mean this, that we are guilty as if we'd been there contributing to his crucifixion. We haven't rightly discerned what it's about. So our attitude towards it is as blasphemous, is as irreverent as those who stood there crying crucify him and those who stood there saying let's wait to see if Elijah comes down and delivers him. No difference in God's sight. So there's two tests we need to do. Every time we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper we've got to spend time, we've got to make time examining our own hearts and lives before we ever celebrate it. Now if we're doing that regularly we don't need to go back over our whole life each time do we? Because that sin that has been confessed and repented, truly repented, truly confessed as Christians is forgiven, it is dealt with, it is behind us. And Paul tells us to put behind us what's behind us and press forward. But we need to reflect over the last few days at least don't we and whether we're more in love with Christ than we were when we celebrated it last 
or whether it's even just to one degree it's starting to wane or starting to slip it's self-examination and then we need to be sure that we know what it is we're doing as we handle those things so easy isn't it when we do it regularly and it comes round again and there's things to distract there's the person next to you who's coughing because they've half choked or whatever it is and and it would be so easy for our minds to just wander off and our minds are supposed to be fixed on one thing and one thing only this represents the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ this should be as real to me as if he was standing before me and I could see the blood running from his hands and his broken body And all I want to think about in this moment, all I want to concentrate on, all I want to know is the wonder that my Saviour, my Lord, died for me. When I didn't deserve it, when I deserved his condemnation, when I deserved his wrath, when I deserved to have him just cast me into hell, he hung on a cross and he bore in his body the punishment for my sin. And I'm just so thankful... And all I want to do in this moment is to rejoice in it and praise him for it. And nothing else should be there in our minds. That's rightly discerning the body and blood of Christ. And if we do those two things, I suggest to you, we'll partake of it worthily. The danger comes when we don't do those things. Then we're in the danger of doing it unworthily. Because instead of focusing on him, we start, what is it I've got to do when I get home? Oh dear, and time's going and that's going to happen and you know that's not celebrating it worthily oh now it's starting to rain out there oh I can hear the rain hammering down that's it and I've left me washing out on the line oh no and that, that's not doing it worthily doing it worthily is when we've examined our hearts and we know we're right before the Lord in that moment and we know what we're there to do and our focus is on Christ and Christ alone then we can celebrate his death in the way he means us to celebrate it. Look, time's raced away. Just very quickly, can I just suggest a couple of questions that would do us good to ask ourselves? Here's the first one. Can you think of any way in which you can encourage your brothers and sisters more in the church, especially those who are less well-off than you or have less freedom of time than you? Can you think of practical ways you could encourage them? It was a good idea they had there in the church, they just didn't do it well. Here's a second question. Can you identify any way in which you might be hurting or discouraging a brother or sister? Especially one who's less fortunate than you. Any way that totally unmeaningly, totally without thought, you might just be damaging them. And here's the third and final question. How precious is the Lord's Supper to you? Is it the vital thing in your life that you look forward to and you think... Next week we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'm so looking forward to it. And are you preparing yourself right for it? You know, some would say, well, the easy solution to this is just don't take it when I'm safe. No, you're not. If you are a Christian, if you can look back and you can identify a time in your life when you got down on your knees, you repented your sin before God. You pleaded with him for his forgiveness. You put your trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone and you gave your life to Christ, if you can do that, then you should be celebrating the Lord's death by celebrating the Lord's Supper. It's not optional. It's instituted by the Lord for the church. The answer isn't to run away from it. The answer is to do it right. How is it for you this morning? I pray you do it with joy. I pray...
You do it to glorify Christ and I pray as you do it the Lord's blessing is on you. Rather than his judgment, do you realise God was actually taking the lives of some there in that church? Some were sick, some were actually dropping dead because of the way they were abusing it. That's what scripture says. Pray that we will get it right before our Lord.